What's going on, guys? We are back with the 50 Plus One Football Show, your home for all things Premier League and Bundesliga. We have a nice little host of topics for you today. But with me, as always, a man who to me is like a good old-fashioned mistake to VAR. It's Billy. I'm noticing a theme here this season. Just a little bit. I mean, it just keeps getting worse, doesn't it? It really does. And we will talk about that. But like Lewis said, a whole host of topics. And we'll start in the Premier League where it was a nightmare for the goalkeepers at Stamford Bridge last weekend. We'll have a look at Aston Villa and why you should probably start taking more notice of the side in Claret and Blue. And of course, we'll talk a little bit about Sandro Tonali and his betting scandal. Then we'll move over to the Bundesliga where, yes, we're going to talk VAR. Similar tackles, very different outcomes for two different players. And we're going to have a look at Bayern's squad depth as well. All that and more after this. Well, like I said, we'll start with the Premier League. And as you're the resident goalkeeper here on the 50 plus one football show, let's start at Stamford Bridge, where neither Robert Sanchez or David Raya covered themselves in glory in the two-all draw on Saturday night. Yeah, you could say as much. I'm going to first of all, address the passes that they made. Because I think for me, um, we'll get to it in a second, but the Mudrick goal, from a goalkeeping standpoint, there are still some questions. I wouldn't say it. it, it is all black and white. But I think for me, the biggest one is their passing because both goalkeepers managed to pass a ball directly to an opponent. One of them obviously got the worse outcome so to speak with uh sanchez getting punished for it um i mean literally just passed it right to declan rice all he had to do was slot it home more easily said than done but you know still clear goalkeeping mistake raya a bit earlier funnily enough was trying to find his own midfielder declan rice and completely missed the pass but got lucky on that one. So I'd say those are the clear goalkeeping mistakes. But the Mudrick goal. I know a lot of people are like, oh, he's caught out of position. Um, You know, he should be doing better. For one thing, it's just going to look like crap when a player meant to cross it and then it sails into the goal. I can definitely understand the arguments being made that he was maybe a bit further forward, but like I said, as a goalkeeper, you're expecting a cross there. You're not expecting some freak thing where, in effect, it was actually a mistake by the player that just happened to then become a lucky uh, goal in that sense. I think it's a bit unfair to be calling it a stone-cold goalkeeping mistake. Let's call them freak crosses. They happen in a game so and so often. And uh, I've definitely been on the receiving end of one of those as well. You always look like an idiot as a goalkeeper, but at the end of the day, um, if not even his own teammates are expecting that cross, then the goalkeeper definitely isn't. Well, that's that's the thing I wanted to ask because there there is a video. It's one of those pitch side, um, we call them EFP or Eng cameras, but it's one of those pitch side cameras that they've got that catch a live pitch level stuff. And he looks up twice, which obviously you would look up for if you were making a cross anyway. And everyone's gone, oh, but he meant that. He oh, may have meant he, he may have meant that. No he may way. Have, he may have done. But I'm, I'm thrown back a few years to West Ham Chelsea. And Arthur Masawaku did pretty much the same thing. Crossed it. Kepper was expecting the cross. He he mishit it, let's be honest, Masawaku, and it went in. I'm thrown back even further to 2013, the 2012-2013 season. Uh, St. James's Park, Newcastle against Manchester United. Tom Cleverley puts a cross in for Van Persie, and it goes in. Well, now, that's yeah. not a shot from Tom Cleverley. So it's, it's, it's a similar thing, but the fact that it's come with his left foot it's almost gone up and behind David Raya. Yeah, but that, like I said, I mean... I'm tempted not to call that a mistake. I'm tempted to call that a 
freak incident. Exactly. I mean, the fans who are saying Mudrick meant that, get out. I mean, that is literally just shown zero ball knowledge. Not a chance in hell. Mikhailo Mudrick, definitely a talented player. Like we've said, definitely also not worth the 100 mil, not even worth the 50 mil. Um, but no way. If Ronaldinho or it was uh, Papi Cisse, and I think even Papi Cisse's goal was scored on the exact same goal at the exact same end at Stamford Bridge, wasn't it? I'm not entirely sure on that, but that one was so outside of the foot, up and over Petr Cech. He then never going to recreate that. Exactly, never, but, but Mudrik isn't Mudrik isn't one of those guys. As talent as talented as he may be, he's not one of those guys who's just going to hit that free thing. So anyone who's saying that he meant that, get out. Well. I, I'm less tempted to to call David Ryer an absolute howler. You know, mistakes are there. Mistakes have been made. But Robert Sanchez yeah. made the biggest mistake of the game. You know, I know there's this thing about playing out from the back and, you know, yeah, managers yeah. want to build from the back and build in transition and things like that. But to, to have a goalkeeper who wasn't Deserby's choice, at Brighton, and Deserby wants to do the playing out from the back thing. Yeah, yeah. To bring him in to replace Kepper, who's gone on loan to Real, and Edouard Mendy, who's gone to Saudi Arabia, I think is probably a weak point in that Chelsea side. Because to give the ball perfectly to Declan Rice, who, like you said, easier said than done, first-time finish, puts it in and makes it 2-1 at that point. There are some question marks over the second goal as well as to whether he should possibly get a touch to that because the ball goes sort of in between his arm and his leg, which I think is a bit unfair. That Yeah, I was about to say, ugh, that, I'd, I'd be hard put to put the second goal on his work resume. But I think, yeah, the first one playing out the back, it is quite telling, isn't it, when... Deservey wasn't the biggest fan. And I mean, we both looked at each other. We were like, what? That's the, you know, the replacement for Kepa. I mean, I, we all know that Kepa also wasn't, you know, through and through the best goalkeeper Chelsea's ever had during his time. You know, he's had, you know, a hard go of it. But for anyone to try and tell me that Sanchez was going to be better than Kepa, I'd say probably not. I get that Kepa, you know, if you're given the chance to become a goalkeeper at one of the biggest, if not the biggest club on earth, you're not going to say no. And you're not as Chelsea going to be like, yeah, no, nah, no, nah, that's not happening. But if Robert Sanchez is the best you can do, I'd be asking some questions. I think the, the problem is, and we've seen it with the strikers market, there is a shortage of top class and i mean when i say top class i mean top one percent class goalkeepers oh 100 you know manuel neuer is just coming back from his injury you've got and you've seen the trouble that Bayern have had i know senor reich has done exceptionally well in the in that interim especially this season post jan zommer yeah but jan zommer didn't really work out um courtois had already been at Chelsea, but wanted to play for Real Madrid. They were never going to get him. So, Old Black's getting on a bit. And then you look in the, the Premier League, you haven't got, you know, United have got Andre Onana in for like £45 million, a player that Inter Milan got in for nothing because the need for goalkeepers is that yeah. prominent. So I think Robert Sanchez probably wouldn't have been a first choice. I think it was a a choice that had to be taken. I'd almost argue that Jan Zoma would have been a better choice. I know that I'm a little bit fuzzy on the exact timing of when the Zoma transfer and the Robert Sanchez transfers were done. But I'd wager a guess that the Sanchez transfer was earlier because I think 
and I mean this was this was also down to the fact that um you know Bayern and Inter were at odds about the transfer sum for Zoma for so long that Zoma went relatively late in the transfer period. So technically speaking, there was a goalkeeper there who would have at least for one or two seasons kind of been a perfect bridge until you got a new, you know, a new number one who was younger and had more time in his career left. So I don't know. Maybe you go for Jan Zama instead of Robert Sanchez. I, I get the height issue probably would have followed him to the Premier League and especially the Premier League because it is such a physical league. But I don't know. I would have maybe thought that Chelsea would have been in the market for Jan Zoma. Possibly. And I, I know height is important as a goalkeeper, but Swansea had a goalkeeper, Michel Vaughan. Oh, yeah. Who was on the short side for a goalkeeper. And he was still exceptional. But... You know, you look at, again, a shortage of goalkeepers. Camille Grabara, who's the Copenhagen keeper, has already gone or signed for Wolfsburg. Exactly. For next season, presumably as a replacement for Cohen Castells. Well, yeah, I mean, Castells has already said that, you know, this is this is it. This is the, you know, the last dance, so to speak. Um, what, for Wolfsburg or entirely? More for Wolfsburg, yeah. See, again, that's another good option for a Premier League side to potentially pick up. Exactly. I mean, a good that's... keeper, Cohen Castells. And he he will be Belgium's keeper at the Euros because there's no way that Courtois will be fit from his ACL injury. I mean, probably. You know, if and the thing is as well, Castells, he's not that old, especially for a goalkeeper. You know, he's only 31. It's it would have been an ideal, ideal look at least because if you think about it um he's also not the shortest of goalkeepers at six foot six 31 years of age has definitely got some international experience for Wolfsburg as well um and has a breadth of Bundesliga experience so I don't know his market value eight million probably not the highest you're ever going to pay for a goalkeeper otherwise so I think if you looked far enough, you could probably have gotten a couple of goalkeepers. I'm not saying Robert Sanchez doesn't have the, you know, the potential to become more. And I'd also wager a guess that spending a year at Chelsea will definitely make him a better goalkeeper as well. But it's just a question of how much patience Chelsea fans, Chelsea Football Club will have. And I mean, we already know their owner has no patience. Um, but yeah, there might have, there very well might have been a couple of different options that Chelsea could have gone for. So I think it's a little bit, yeah. Like I said, a couple of question marks surrounding that move. But I want to talk about one more goalkeeper in London who also could be looking for a move away next summer, and that's Aaron Ramsdale. This is interesting. Because we saw with Aaron Ramsdale, you know, David Raya came in and Mikel Arteta made the point that, look, I've got two first-choice goalkeepers now, which isn't usually the case. You you have your preferred choice and you have your backup keeper. Yeah, yeah. And he has been benched for David Raya. And off the back of that performance, the back of the last couple performances, actually, because there was a... The game against Lons a couple of weeks ago, I think. Now it was before the international break. He made a mistake against Lons and yeah, Champions League. Yeah, surely you'd knock on the manager's door. I mean, I'm I'm not a fan of um, you know a goalkeeper makes a mistake and he gets dropped right away. But of course, it is a different situation when, as you've said, Arteta says he's got two. Uh, first choice goalkeepers that obviously makes the competition a lot fiercer and also a mistake is weighted a lot more than say if you have one clear first team goalkeeper and one backup because obviously you're not going to throw in your backup right away when a first choice makes a mistake but if you've got two goalkeepers who are more or less the same level and they're both gunning for it I mean for me I don't understand the transfer of getting Raya in for 
the keep for the keeper position anyway. Because if you already have Aaron Ramsdale, I hope someone had a conversation with him at that club. You know, at least Mikel Arteta, or if not someone from the board as well, you know, said to him, "Look, it's nothing personal, um, but we still feel that we need to get another goalkeeper in. So you will be having, you know, a battle for the number one spot." Which, you know, if I was Aaron Ramsdale, that'd still be a slap in the face because obviously then the manager doesn't back you 100% to start. So I don't know. I think a potential move, funnily enough, if you were to do uh, a, an Arsenal to Chelsea switch, much like uh, Olivier Giroud did, um, it would be even funnier. But, you know, I don't, it's... Because I think Ramsdale, um, and this is why I feel bad almost for criticizing Sanchez, because Ramsdale also got so much criticism when he was brought into Arsenal and everyone, you know, he gets the move that he was always dreaming of. And basically he looks in the media and everyone's like, don't know why they've said, why they've done that, why they've gone for this goalkeeper. Don't think he's up to the task. If that's all you get from like day one of your move, that's got to be harsh. So I, I don't know, from a goalkeeping perspective, I hope that Ramsdale gets a club where he is valued. And I hope that Sanchez also comes up uh, and, you know, measures up to the task he's, he's in, but I'd argue both Arsenal and Chelsea's goalkeeping positions are very much not set in stone. And there, we could still be seeing a lot of movement there. Well, do let us know. Do you think Aaron Ramsdale should leave Arsenal? What about Robert Sanchez? And David Raya, are they good enough to be the first choice keepers for Chelsea and Arsenal? But now let's take a look at a team in Claret and Blue that seems to be blowing everyone out of the water, particularly when it comes to playing at Villa Park. I mean, an unbeaten home run of 11 matches says it all, really. You know, they're fifth in the Prem. They got 19 points. And the three points ahead of Newcastle, who incidentally smacked them around St. James's Park at the beginning of the season. So, well, that's the thing. Newcastle are the top scorers this season so far with 24. Exactly. Yeah. Aston Villa have 23. So they're only one goal behind Newcastle. And despite that 5 1 loss to Newcastle and a 3 0 to Liverpool, they've had their own big results. I mean, they beat. West Ham 4-1 at the weekend, but they beat Brighton 6-1. I think this that is when, me, yeah, that one's that one's a bigger one for me. Well, this is when Brighton, I don't think I don't think they'd lost or they lost to City or something like that, but they were sort of like the Premier League's golden the golden boys of the Premier League. Couldn't do anything yeah. wrong. Deserby's football was fantastic. Brighton were blowing everyone away. Yeah, yeah. Rock up at Villa Park and get absolutely well hit for six. So it's fantastic the job that Emery has done. And we spoke about it when he was appointed more from the Steven Gerrard side, because it's the same or back last season. It was the same group of players, same group of players that Steven Gerrard couldn't get a tune out of. Yeah, exactly. And now Unai Emery has come in and absolutely revolutionized Aston Villa. And it's a great, sorry, I'm sorry, but it's a credit to the man who was ridiculed at Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. You know, he's probably, he probably would have been a very good manager for Arsenal, but Arsenal at that point in time were not a very good team. And they also weren't in the business of giving managers time, which I think they're definitely doing with Arteta. But can we just take a trip down memory lane when people were touting Steven Gerrard to be Jurgen Klopp's replacement for Liverpool? And now the man is in the Middle East, coaching, for lack of a better word, National League-level football? Well, I think uh, Al-Etifak, his team, lost to Al-Radia or something. I can't remember how you pronounce it. But there was like 750 people in that stadium. And more people turned up to watch Bury play at the weekend. Oh yeah, the, I, what would it? Um, I think no, it was nine hundred and forty-six in attendance, um, because Al Atifak is uh, Jordan Henderson's club as well, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. Yeah, you know, well known. Yeah, and and a lot of 
And a lot of players were say, or a lot of people on social media were saying Jordan Henderson's basically said, yeah, I'm not going to Saudi Arabia for the money. I'm going there because, you know, it, it's the project or whatever. And he's now gone from playing in front of tens of thousands at Anfield to 946, which is a worse turnout than what Boreham Wood had on average last season. Boreham Wood had 1,185 people in attendance on average last season. And Boreham Wood aren't even in League Two. Well, exactly. Boreham Wood, a, a national league. So, look, fine. We'll leave Steven Gerrard and we'll leave Jordan Henderson to <laughs> piss their careers away in, in the Middle East because I, I want to heap more praise on Aston Villa. Oh, 100%. Particularly Ollie Watkins, who yes. this season already five goals and five assists, but seems to be doing or seems to have struck up a really good partnership with Moussa Diaby, who we all knew his qualities when he was at Leverkusen. Yeah. Again, there's always that question mark, you know, will he be able to transfer that from the Bundesliga to the Premier League? We've seen some players, Jaden Sancho, for lack of a better word, struggle to do it. I don't, I'd even argue Leon Bailey. Well, that's the thing. Leon Bailey... <laughs> Moussa Diaby took his place in the Leverkusen team so he went to Aston Villa and now Moussa Diaby's followed him to Villa and credit to Leon Bailey when he came on against West Ham he looked really good he looked really sharp yeah genuinely think that could probably be a good front three going forward I mean think of the raw speed that you've got going forward if that's but not a front only that three. think of think of the depth when you've got fullbacks shattered after being up against Moussa Diaby for 75, 80 minutes. Yeah. When you can roll that dice and bring on Leon Bailey. Yeah. Absolutely exactly. terrorize a shattered right back. Oof. So, you know, it's... Uh, thoughts and prayers for those fullbacks. Um, I mean, I'd still argue Diaby with two goals, three assists has room to improve. Um, you know, if... Two goals, three assists is a is is a solid tally, but I'd say you could still could still bump those numbers up a little bit. But you know, as you said, the partnership between Diaby and Watkins, I think I think for the fact that Aston Villa had so much, so much to struggle with during the 2010s era. And now, you know, they've they've come back. Um and they're not just a club trying to stay in the Premier League. They're a club who's actively, you know, for lack of a better word, they're gunning for European places. Right now, they're sitting fifth. So, well, fifth place, four points off of uh, Spurs at the top. Exactly. I so, mean, yeah, it's early days in the season still, but, you know, I wouldn't peg Villa to start letting up anytime soon. No, it's it's, it's early days and it's that tricky Christmas period that I think when you've got a game every like three days yeah that you'll you'll start to see because yeah okay they're playing European competition but the, the teams they're playing with all due respect to them aren't the most troubling and they've got AZ Alkmaar uh, to, uh, Thursday coming at time of recording who are currently I think top of the Eredivisie so that's probably a, the toughest yeah, but the European game they've had so far but in but in the Premier League, Aston Villa are beating the teams they should be beating, and you know, short of beating top six teams, they're doing the the absolute maximum of what they can achieve. Because I mean, we all know that the the difference between making it from yeah, you've got European places in the Europa League solid, um, and you know, almost in the bag, to going for contending for the Premier League title and getting Champions League places, it involves beating the top six teams. So, you know, short of that, they're doing everything they can do. And I think that'll be the next step. You know, Newcastle are showing how to do it, especially when they were able to knock City out of the Carabao Cup. Um, but, you know, I think Villa probably given the right... Um, 
you know the the right way going forward in terms of squad depth in terms of team building um we could be seeing a similar trajectory but i think we've gushed enough on villa for the time being and i think we have to move over to oh uh sorry uh, just egg on my face uh they lost 3-2 to legia warsaw in their first uh conference league match but other than that they're doing great yeah oh well um but moving over to newcastle where the italian betting scandal has now flown all the way to the uk obviously sandra tonali uh nicola fagioli and uh zaniolo are all involved um there's no word on Zaniolo yet what kind of punishment he will be getting, but Sandro Tonali should be looking at a 10-month ban, which has massive implications for Newcastle, who ended up spunking £55 million pounds on him. Um, and I think, Billy, you added into the notes, did Milan know that Tonali was going to get wrapped up and then sell him? That'd be one of the biggest conspiracy theories ever. That was more tongue-in-cheek because they do love a scandal in Serie A. Oh, yeah. Massively. Um, <laughs> but Fagiolo's got seven months. Uh, it looks like Sandro Tonali's going to get ten. Yeah. Uh, both of those which include um, mandatory rehab for gambling addiction, which I think is probably the best way to go because they've, they've come out and said they haven't denied it. Yeah, yeah. They haven't tried to, you know... Uh, no, I, I totally wasn't. They've come out and said, look, you know, I have a problem. Unlike Ivan Tony. I think it's a different one to to Ivan Tony, given the volume of, of Tony's ones. Yeah. But it's it's going to be interesting because, you know, his season is over. Oh, yeah. So that's one year of his five-year contract at Newcastle done. Credit to the Newcastle fans. When he came on at the weekend, he got a massive reception. Yeah, yeah. Which I think when you see Ivan Tony come back in the new year, he'll get a massive reception from the Brentford fans. But it's, it's more... It, look, we spoke about this when we did... Talk about Ivan Tony. And the fact that you can't watch football for more than five minutes without having your nose rubbed in a betting ad. It's on the ad boards, it's on the shirts. It's you watch football on Sky, they'll do the team lineups, you know, they'll they'll play the music, they'll do the team lineups, the camera walks down the, the starting elevens. Then it cuts away just so Ray can tell you to put some money on. And then it will come say, back. The, the, the good old, I mean, nothing screams UK quite like Ray Winston telling you to bet, uh, bet with Bet365. And that's a part of the reason why the sports betting industry worldwide is worth over £160 billion. Pounds. Because it's so prominent every single, every single place you go to watch football, Less so in rugby, I will say that, and less so in cricket, but football all levels, basketball, greyhound yeah, racing, horse racing, stuff well, I mean, like horse that. Horse racing is basically, you know... Uh, if they banned betting on horse racing, the entire industry would collapse because no one enjoys <laughs> watching horses run unless you've got large sums of money on it. Exactly. But I think, you know, one of the bigger things as well, you know, the Bundesliga has the same thing. Every single match day seems to be sponsored by either uh, Tipico or uh, B-Win. You know, Real Madrid had B-Win for the longest time as well on, on their shirts. And, you know, you think it, it'd be like Manchester United from a market, marketing standpoint, slapping a, a betting company on, on their shirts as well. You would, you would see the money go through the roof. Um, but you know, we, we've talked about it a lot and specifically because Chelsea have such a, um, or had such a hard time finding, um, a shirt sponsor. 
and you know they were very close to signing uh to signing a deal and then you know a lot of fan backlash led to that deal not going through um but i think it's very very telling when even even though english top flight clubs will no longer be allowed to have gambling brands on their shirts from the 2026 27 season onwards um that's betting companies are still going for it you know they'll they'll still take the payday up until then I think it just goes to show that it's become such an ingrained part of the football industry um, that I think there isn't be enough being done to combat gambling addictions. And then, you know, for the fact that, you know, you now have betting scandals coming up, I know it's about the integrity of of the sport. But, you know, when you have, on the one hand, every single ad board flashing Bet365 or at home or whatever it is um and then on the other hand it's always a massive betting scandal then it's a well, bit harsh when you think about the involvement that sports betting has in football well i don't know what it's like in germany with their betting adverts but over here we have the uh stop when the, when the phone stops stop and yeah, the, it's, it's not they don't have a clear campaign like that yeah, but it's like a yellow slate that goes up at the end of an ad. Yeah, yeah. The end of the ad for about five seconds, if that. I was about to say five seconds. It's one of those things where it's like the American ads after, you know, pharmaceutical um, ads go up. And it's like the, the you know, the voice is going at two times normal speed uh, to rifle through a thing that's like, uh, you know, if you have this and that, you should go see your doctor, ask your doctor about a prescription or something like that. You know, it's it's obviously, you know, when the fun stops, stop. But tell that to an addict. It's not going to happen. Well, exactly. You're always chasing your losses as an addict. Exactly. And so what what needs to be done? Does the FA or does the Premier League have to introduce sort of almost education? Not I suggesting mean, just for first team as well. This can go all the way down through the youth teams. Just someone to come in and talk to them and say, look, I know they're not supposed to bet anyway, so it might sound like a bit of a, well, just don't do it. But if you're an addict, that's not the case. I was so about to say, you... it's, it's hard to put, you know, the finger on the exact solution because I'd say, first of all, you know, the first step to eradicating the problem is admitting there is one. And I don't think that there's been enough done to just say, you know, look, we've got a massive betting problem that it you know that stems from the amount of sports betting going on in football um and we have to address it i think the, that's the one of the clearest things would be for the fa first to admit that you know in the premier league and all the way down to grassroots uh you've got or to the lower leagues and the amateur leagues you've got betting problems and you know maybe then you start to look uh, more closely at what can be done to eradicate sports betting. The problem is, obviously, like you said, 160 billion pounds uh, in the sports betting industry. The ban on the sponsors being allowed from the 2026-27 season is a start, but it's such an intricate problem that you're going to piss someone off. It's like when Formula One, Formula One had to eradicate the uh, smoking um and the tobacco industry from being sponsors i think it's going to be a similar situation well also the other problem is that the fa can just brush this one away and say well it's a Serie A problem it's not yeah exactly it's not a premier league problem even though the two of them now play in the premier league but <laughs> let's leave the premier league for now we'll look forward to seeing sandro tonali play next season i suppose but now let's move over to the Bundesliga. And VAR has struck again. It never seems to go away. So a yellow card for Vincenzo Grifo, a red card for Kone. Same tackle, more or less? Yes? No? Yeah, I mean, yeah. studs up ankle height you know Kone 
was shown the red card by Dennis Aitikin, who, in my opinion, is the best referee the Bundesliga has to offer. Um, you know, he had no qualms showing uh, Manu Kone a red card for that challenge on Dian Lubacic. For then the exact same challenge to go through and, first of all, be shown a yellow card to Vincenzo Grifo. Oh. I mean, I think uh, Bochum manager Thomas Lech said it best. Does a guy have to break his ankle for him to be shown a red card in the post-match? And I have well, to agree with him because, I mean, you saw the challenge as, uh, as much as I did. That card should have been blood red, no? It should have been. Absolutely should have been, especially if you compare the two. I know referees at that time can't compare previous yeah, yeah. Uh, previous decisions, but if you look at almost identical tackles from Manu Kone and Vincenzo Grifo, interestingly enough, now we've started having something slightly similar in the UK where they're releasing audio from the VAR room for people to hear, and then Howard Webb, the head of the PGMOL, will explain the decision in Germany though it's a little bit different because you had the VAR referee on live TV to well, explain VAR the referee in that sense he he was the media media and communications boss for the uh, for the German FA referees association it's a mouthful um but yeah he's basically like the boss of you know okay so similar to Howard Webb exactly exactly similar to Howard Webb yeah but that really hasn't helped matters, has it? No, because he... So basically, the whole thing comes from, um, you know, on Sky Sports, you've got all the goals, which is kind of like match of the day. So you basically have, um, you know, the some some experts, uh, a presenter, uh, go through all the Bundesliga matches right after they've happened. And Didi Hamann is one of the experts who some of you will also know from his Liverpool days. Um and also and from being a professional shite talker. <laughs> exactly. And he was on there. But for once, I have to agree with him. So basically, they had um, Alex Feuerherz, who is the uh, equivalent of Howard Webb. I think it's easier than, you know, having the mouthful of his actual title explained again. Um, they had him on like, a, on like a live conference call, so to speak. And he came in and he basically said, this is word for word. There are good arguments for a red card, of course. The intensity, the momentum. The ankle buckles a little to the side. What could speak for a yellow? The so-called hit pattern. The side of the foot is hit, the edge of the shoe, so to speak. And the hit pattern is indeed a criterion that is important for referees. Where is the hit above or below the ankle? Here it was below, so the field decision yellow card was still acceptable from a video assistant referee's point of view. However, he also said that if the on-field decision had been read, he would not have intervened. Your opinion on that, let's call it complete BS explanation. Well, it's a, it's a total cop-out, is what <laughs> it is. He's not given a definitive answer. He's not come out and said, yes, we, we agree with the referee in this point. It should have been a yellow card because of X, Y, and Z. He said, well, if you look at it, it could have been a yellow, so the referee's right. But also, if it was a red, it would have been fine as well. Which is absolutely ridiculous. And it's a problem with referees, because I know they get a lot of stick. And we've spoken about this before, that you know referees get an unbelievable amount of dogs abuse. But again, if they did it properly and there was some consistency, they wouldn't they wouldn't get this. And I'll go back to what I said a few weeks ago, that you shouldn't have to have these types of programs. Shouldn't have that. Um, Alex uh, Feuerhard or how, whoever it is, come on and explain that. Shouldn't have Howard Webb stood there with Michael Owen explaining a decision because you shouldn't have to justify the actions of a referee. No. I mean, th the thing is, for me, you know, the fact that the on-field referee, Thomas Reichert, should have already shown Grifo the red card. I mean, for a referee to miss that is about as dumb as uh, Michael Oliver missing the red card on uh, Mateo Kovacic. Uh, but, I mean, we already went through that, you know, the previous episode. Um, 
that being said, for the video assistant referee to then look at that and say there were criteria for that being a yellow. His he even said it in the in in the uh in the explanation. His ankle buckles to the side. If his foot had been planted, much like you know, if Udegaard hadn't been in you know full motion and his foot had been planted, you would have seen his ankle snapped in two. I'm not saying you, you know, even Thomas Lech said, you know, he wasn't going to say that Grifo had any malicious intent behind it. He was just a step too late. But at the end of the day, you still should be showing a red card. To add insult to injury, Grifo scored the winning penalty later on in that match to make it 2-1 for Freiburg. And, you know, Thomas Edge said, you know, completely irrelevant part of that being, you know, him already scoring the winner. But just imagine you have the game from that moment in time going 11 v 10. Obviously, a man less, everyone knows what's going to happen. And at that time, you know, like like we said, the game was completely open. So I think that's also, you know, adding insult to injury. But for for him, for Alex Foyer had to go and say, yeah, this tackle was below the ankle and it hits, you know, the edge of his boot is complete BS because you see where the tackle goes. The studs hit right on the ankle. There's no two ways of looking at it. Which is also what Didi Haman said, and it was great because Didi Haman literally attacked the guy on live television. Was like, no, that's BS. You clearly see that he's getting hit on the ankle. You can't tell me that that should be a red card. If that's not a red card, we just we can stop and pack it all in. Yeah, okay. It's it's a it's a difficult one. It is a difficult one because there is no consistency. No, because, yeah, the same. T- sorry to butt in, but the same tackle that Manu Kone did, first of all, earned him a straight red, and second of all, got him a two-match ban because, as the German FA put it, it was a rough and reckless challenge. Well, not glad back then, not in their own right to appeal that and go, well, look at this. I mean, probably, but <laughs> because say they do that, and the German FA says. Well, no, because it's the same tackle. That one should have been a red. You go, aha! <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> so he is Jack wrong. Jack Hughes and all that. So, <laughs> you know, for the sake of another match ban, taking it up to three, is it not, not worth making them, you know, call out their own bullshit? It would be. But, I mean, like we've said, it's just, so often, so often, it just seems like there's, you know, we keep saying it, no consistency, no consistency. How long do these problems have to keep creeping up for there's some for someone to, you know, call for an overhaul of the way VAR is done? I mean, we've said it time and time again, put an ex-pro there right next to him to basically give his, you know, decision or, or give give his thoughts and weigh in on specific tackles or whatnot give give the referees the mic'd up thing we've said it time and time again it's not that difficult to make improvements to it because we both agreed that you can't take away var altogether because that would just become that would also be you know it wouldn't help the situation it would just make it more of a shit show exactly but i think that's enough on the uh Poor refereeing decisions from this weekend. Now let's finish with a take at Bayern's squad depth and uh, what the people on the inside are saying and also you as a fan because it's uh, not great, is it? Nah, I mean, it. it's... Put it this way. It just gives... You know, from, from, a, from an objective standpoint, I'm saying, you know, Bayern's problems are of their own making. Um, as a fan, obviously you're sitting there thinking, you know, you're seething and saying you had the, you had the option, you had, you had the tools to, to get the right players in. And now, now you're going to screw the whole season away. But, you know, like we are objective journalists. So, so we're, we're going to keep with that. Um, look, Thomas Tuchel has said that he, needs more players he needed at least a center back more which is pretty obvious seeing as uh matthias Selich now has to play full 90 uh minute games because 
there is literally no other personnel left at the center back position, even though he's not 100% fit. Um, Tuba has also said that he wanted another uh, holding six. Palinha fell through on deadline day. But I think, you know, and Didi Hamann again also laid into Tuchel and said, you know, he doesn't understand why Tuchel keeps whining about the squad being too small, seeing as Tuchel was one of the people on Bayern's so-called transfer task force, along with, uh, you know, the the good old boys, Karl-Heinz Rummenigge and um, honorary president Uli Hoeneß. But, you know, you've also got the CEO, Jan Christian Dresen, involved, the president, Herbert Heiner, technical director, Marco Neppe, and even the CFO. Obviously, the CFO has to be involved because, you know, when these 100 million transfers start going through, he has to say something. But you've got a transfer task force where Tuchel is part of the whole thing. And then he keeps whining about the players that he's not getting. Can I make an observation as an outsider? Please. That's too many cooks. Oh, yeah. Believe me. I, I You know, um, Karl Heinz, the Rummenigge, early, I shouldn't be on there. Early Hernes definitely should not be anywhere near current transfer dealings. I don't know how many times I have to repeat myself. Just fucking leave. Just retire. Go and live by the lake. Fish, ski, and drink yourself into a grave. But how? Oh, okay. I get the whole you can't say anything because, you know, United cling to the past like shit to Velcro. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> Sir Alex Ferguson and uh, the late great Bobby Charlton weren't involved in current transfer dealings <laughs> just let it go man because this is i can guarantee he would have been sat there going presumably like some bond villain with a big cigar in his mouth someone would have suggested oh why don't we get uh this player in and he would have been sat there going, tapped his cigar and gone no nah, i don't like that person <laughs> it's like cry okay we'll cross it off we'll do what early wants because the whole jao palinia one should have been done Okay, that should have been dead and buried and completed within. To be fair, it was. It was more, you know, full of. You left it till the last day. Oh, believe me, I'm. I'm definitely not saying it wasn't Bayern's fault for leaving it till the last day. Um, but you know, you say that Uli Hoeneß should have been out. I'd argue, first of all, yes, too many cooks. You could leave out the president, man. The president doesn't need to be there. The CFO only needs to be there in a, you know, in a financial capacity just to basically sign the checks. The CEO, does he really, like, does he need to be there if you've basically got the old CEO and the old president? You don't need the new CEO and the new president. Either you have the woman... Arguably, you don't need any of those four people. You need Thomas Tuchel and a director of football. Which the which Bayern haven't had up until the first of September when Christoph Freund joined up from uh, from RB Salzburg. Um, that being you know that being said, but you know he was on the transfer task force at the end of the day. He did have a say. Um, of course, he could have gotten overruled, whatnot. But the problem also being he's he's kept on saying that you know the task force isn't good. Or I'm sorry, the squad isn't good enough, and that earned a little bit of backlash from uh, the boys upstairs, namely Uli Hoeneß. He basically was like, "They were unwise remarks." This was uh, during the um, international break, and he went on to say, "I don't make my team look bad by saying we're spread too thin, we're this, we're that." If you see every weekend what we have sitting on the bench, and namely these are only national team players, we don't have a thin squad. Which, on the one hand, I agree with the part that you can't keep whining and keep saying they're spread too thin because that's not going to help things. But on the other hand, saying that just because there are national team players on the bench saying we're not spread too thin, well, I don't know. It's pretty obvious that when Leon Goretzka has to play center back because all three are injured, you've got a massive problem. Exactly. Can I can I just ask, what's going on with Max Erbel? I mean, so many people have said now that he's been kicked out of Gladbach, he's going to go to Bayern. And it's no secret that the guy has wanted to go to Bayern 
because you know it's his he himself played there it's his boyhood club uh he started there in the youth product as well so he's got very very strong ties to Bayern to the city of Munich all well and good but if he went now to Bayern I mean not that he hasn't lost credibility you know getting fired from Leipzig but if he went to Bayern he would lose any credibility any little credibility he had left because then it would be very clear that he just wanted Leipzig as a placeholder until Bayern went for a new sporting director. And the 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 thinking is that, you know, obviously because Christoph Freund is now um, sporting director, that Eva would basically take over as um, not sporting director, but would stay on as the director of sport for the whole club and be on the board of directors. So you have, you know, the sporting director under him, and then you know the board of directors himself. Uh, uh, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Exactly, so it doesn't make any sense. You've, already, you have two, you have, you have you've already got guys. you've already got a sporting director, and you'll bring you the the idea would be to bring in Max Eberl as director of sport. That's like having two of a them, chief yeah. executive officer, and then hiring someone as an executive officer in chief or something like that. Exactly. It makes no sense, which I mean, th that's why I'm saying that I can't rat quite wrap my head around how Bayern would want to do this without firing Christoph Freund, who they just got from Abbey Salzburg. Which makes no sense. Everyone's like, yeah, Christoph Freund, you know, he's he's, you know, the guru who basically um, he found Erling Haaland. So if you want to, you know, he, he's definitely got a good track record. And everyone was like, "Oh, he's got a great track record of signing, you know, of getting in these top at, these top players." Um, that's why he's the perfect guy for Bayern. Now, if Max Eber is supposed to come in and become the new perfect guy for Bayern, it wouldn't make any sense, and it wouldn't just hurt Eber's credibility; it would also hurt Bayern's credibility. It also sounds a bit backwards as well, in in principle, because yeah, he's found these players, he's found these players, but he's found them when they were raw uncut diamonds inexperienced which if you're doing that for Bayern Munich that's a problem. No disrespect yeah. to RB Salzburg but that's not going to work Bayern need ready-made stars now well I mean I don't I wouldn't say they need ready-made stars right now if you look at for instance Jamal Muziala uh, yeah, that's a little bit different because you've come through the academy but what I'm suggesting yeah. is you wouldn't buy an aren't in the business of buying yeah, you're not buying Musial. a 20 year old who's got no experience. Exactly. They've yeah. done it with Matisse Tell. Okay, credit there, credit where it's due. But that's not quite the same thing as doing it for Salzburg or, yeah, exactly. or a team like that. But anyway, I think that's probably a good place to leave it on the back of Bayern's transfer woes, muddle woes. <laughs> probably. And as always, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to 50 Plus One Sports on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And make sure to check out the 50 Plus One Football Show on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, and of course, Spotify. But thank you very much for listening, guys. Keep calm and love the beautiful game.